You're listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on real estate investing. Join us on our entrepreneurial voyage through the world of flipping houses, managing rental property, and building a real estate empire. Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. I am John Errico here as always with Ryan Goldfarb. We are very excited because we have a great episode today with a guest. We don't often have guests recently because of COVID issues, but we have a guest appearing virtually who's actually a, a friend of mine in the real estate space, Stefan Svetkov, who is a, a data scientist, a quantitative expert, also a real estate investor, friend of mine. I met him in the real estate investing context, and we're going to be discussing real estate valuations across the United States and also a little bit of Stefan's background and thoughts on the real estate market in general. Stefan, please uh, introduce yourself and thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you guys for having me. Hey, uh, John and Ryan. Um, so my name is Stefan. I'm a financial engineer previously by career and education, and I'm a multifamily investor in the re a recent couple of years. Yeah. Perfect. I think before we get into the topic, which is on real estate valuations and your perspectives and thoughts on that, it would be fun just to hear a little bit about your professional background and also a little bit how you got into real estate investing. I know you're doing your own thing right now, but I know you have a kind of a financial background before your current venture. Is that right? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, yes. So, so first of all, I'm a Eastern European myself. Bulgarian originally. So I came to the States, like straight to New York at 22. I came here to do my master's in uh, financial engineering at Columbia. And then I worked for 10 years in the field. Um, so I worked at an insurance company managing the derivatives portfolio of an insurance company. So that was my job um, for about 10 years. And I recently switched to uh, full time investing and building um, analytics building technology in the real estate industry. So what did your what did your real estate investing career look like prior to jumping into your current role full time? Yes, so prior to jumping into my current role, so I did a few deals um, in New Jersey and New York State. I had like, prior to jump, I had maybe like five deals or so. So I kind of, like what I was primarily seeking as an investor, I was looking for, sort of turnkey deals that have some kind of arbitrage or inefficiency where you can re realize an equity upside. So those are different types. So it's, let's say like a, a fourplex, turn it into a fiveplex was one of my deals upstate that sort of doubled the valuation, fortunately there. And then subsequently condominium conversions is what I've been doing more recently. So like to your audience, like for your audience, so that's like, Taking a multifamily could be any number of units and, you know, making it into condominiums. It's sort of a legal side, uh, legal side value add. Um, it may involve renovation subsequently, but it was more of like my mindset as a finance person was really more, okay, can I have a price discrepancy that is there in SE's condition and work out from there to potential like phase two other further upside if, if that's the case, but, but always my criteria, criteria for deal selection or where, okay, is there some kind of equity gain potential in assets condition can be realized. So, so yeah, that's what I was looking for. The arbitrage opportunity. So in, in the case of a condo conversion, I'm guessing that you were finding properties that were not 
you know, existing condo, condominium buildings, right? And then you're subdividing the apartments or whatever it is into condos, and that's the arbitrage opportunities, right? So it's, it, when you, it, it's as is in the sense that you're not gutting the building necessarily, but you're still putting work, presumably, into subdividing the, the building into condos or whatever, right? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, to the extent that, I mean, it's to the extent that if you do only legal side, legal side value add, you can say that's work as well. And, and then, okay, maybe it's not like perfect, perfect arbitrage in that sense, but, but it's more of, um, you know, the, the idea being, okay, if you do not have to physically alter the property necessarily, do you have a, yeah. some kind of opportunity with it that, you know, has a high certainty of happening and, and, um, yes. So definitely multifamilies that are not already condos, but my second, uh, second deal actually, uh, while I was still having my job was, was actually a condo building. So it had like three condos. So it was already separated, but it, and that was in 2018, but uh, they actually were not able to sell them. So that was, that was kind of like non-warrantable condos uh, strategy where they weren't qualifying for conventional financing. And I was, okay, my kind of bet was maybe that may change. And even if it doesn't change, I'm yeah. pretty good with find, finding like good lenders. So maybe I will find like an opportunity for, for the buyer and I like, connect him to a lender uh, who would give him like favorable terms, etc. So, so that was, um, that had an arbitrary, that was perfectly turnkey building. I did nothing to it. And it had an upside of, I don't know, you know, maybe 25% or something like that. That's awesome. So, so going into these projects, you're looking at it and saying, I can buy this building right now for $400 a square foot. I know that based on the current market conditions and the current conditions of this building, if this were a condo building, I know that these units would be selling for something like $500 a square foot. Yes, if it happens to be the case, and and doing this kind of with data, and um, so so I I would pull like all multifamilies in the New York City area, and and actually like for for other strategies, because I would go like upstate New York as well. So for other strategies, and then including this one, I would pull maybe six thousand multifamilies, which most of them would be small multifamilies, two to four units, and there would be some bigger ones as well. So like about six thousand on market listings actually. And I know investors are usually kind of skeptical because it's more of like an off market strategy, but I was feeling that, okay, if I have like the full data and I'm able to actually kind of price it on a set of criteria, I could go to okay, 0.1% and find some kind of exception. And I believe it does work and it did work. So most of the deals I did find on the MLS you know, it's not a popular thing to say, but that's that that's what actually happened. But but if like you underwrite on this kind of more contrarian strategies that other investors are not looking into, then maybe maybe there's a bigger chance that you know there isn't too much investor appetite there and you have you know right. like thousands, thousands of listings and but 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 again, like for condo conversions, most of the time it wouldn't be the case. So most of the time there's no real arbitration. If you, if you look at the condition of the property, you realize, okay, well, yeah, it's uh, it could be worth more as condos, but maybe it's kind of like when you put in the renovation cost, it kind of evens out or it's right. not really an arbitrage opportunity. So so it, it does take certain effort to find and it's like, you know, very few buildings that actually work for that, that have the, the proper layout. And so maybe it's going to be a, you know, like a three family that has a three bedroom units or something like that. Well, it's interesting because it's actually not completely dissimilar to our strategy that we do in Atlantic City stuff. And I, I think you you know, but we, you know, we, 
we're, we're doing, you know, value add stuff where we're taking distressed properties and then renovating. But part of it is that, you know, we're, we're finding mispriced assets because the sellers are pricing the units or the apartment or the, the building, not believing they can do short-term rentals in the building, which is extremely lucrative. And we know that we can, so we can buy existing assets at, you know, maybe a fifth of what, say, the price should be relative to the income of the property. And potentially do very little. I mean, in our case, we, we do a lot to them, but potentially do very little and still rent them out for, for quite a while. We, we know other investors who do more of yes. that like turnkey strategy. So it, it's, it's a great strategy. And we found a lot of stuff in the MLS as well. Yeah. And, and one added perk to that, that I think often goes underappreciated is the fact that the MLS is generally more complete in terms of the, the data that's provided than you'll find anywhere else. So I know there are a lot of people like including us who have done a lot off market and we've, we've done a lot of direct mail and things like that. But when you're buying data or you're procuring data yourself, there's very limited, uh, there's a limited supply of accurate data that you can pull like in mass. I agree. Whereas, right. yeah, whereas like the way that the MLS is, yeah, yeah, is regulated and administered, you get a you get a more complete data set, and if you're able to employ, yeah, <laughs> and if you're able to employ a strategy. There, there's just more depth. I agree. You're right. completely right, Ryan. So, and again, this is not like not advocating uh, MOS in any way. And that's, I, I would say that primarily works for residential deals. And I think on the commercial side, it's not a good strategy. And there, I actually, I can share like what I've been doing because I'm looking into switching to this field and maybe did my last residential deal at this point. We'll see. And um, so I oh, wanted to... Like kind of like the model that I did in commercial space, I can share. And that that there is an off-market model. But for residential, I've really been doing on-market because exactly to your point, there's just more data. There is more depth that you can get out of this data. And and even if you say like something like the MOS, I, I was doing like what I was doing. I wanted to find like, I was going to like online sources that would almost exactly mirror the MOS. Now, you know, this is a question maybe for an internet attorney whether one should share this here, but such a resource is Redfin. Mm -hmm. So Redfin is kind of like being a brokerage, you know, by by virtue of their technology model as compared to Zero and Truly and Realtor.com, their right. data is different. So, you know, like where Realtor.com would take their data from ListHub, you would have a Zero and, you know, Zero sort of like in certain like agent submissions, etc. But the data from Redfin would be literally a copy of the MOS without the broker remarks and advertising remarks or whatever. Or right. I guess broker remarks or what do they call it? So, so that's, um, so that would be like have a lot of depth. And, and so I would reason, okay, I could, I would only have value if I use this extremely like deep data and like where you can see like literally the unit split and square feet and, um, and stuff like that. So, so that I think was a kind of a, it is a viable strategy in the residential space. It's also a lot of work, but, um, I mean, as far as like, let's say to come tie to what you guys are doing, I did purchase, um, I had a couple of deals which were renovation projects with which I sold to other investors upstate New York. So those would be like the complete re renovation project, but I yeah. find it using this data and I would buy like the cheapest three family existent and kind of like with all its, with all its characteristics, et cetera. And I would not even go and see it and I would do an inspection first. And then if it passes the inspection, then maybe I will go see it and before I buy it. And, um, and, and that's, uh, that's pretty much it. And, and that also went well. So another thing I think I feel on the MOS actually for renovation deals, if one goes to really depressed markets and we have plenty of them here in the Northeast. So if we, uh, for example, upstate New York, 
I mean, uh, upstate New York is one such area where, you know, I feel like it's definitely a buyer's market where you can, I don't know, every, even if it's like a turnkey property, you definitely should go and bid 20% below ask at least. And if, even if it's on the MOS and, and, or 25 or 30. And then typically most sellers would agree to that. But the way I kind of would know that, okay, so the price, and I feel that many investors, like I would have like some of my friends from New York City, they would go to an area like that, which is, in my opinion, like super depressed. And so they would go to an area like that, like upstate New York, the majority of counties, let's say, that are, you know, with relative proximity to New York City. Because there was some growth in like towards the Buffalo area in up in New York State. And then obviously New York City. And those were like this market cycle. Those were the growing regions in the in the state. But everything else pretty much was like super depressed. And so if one looks at the the date, the market data, let's say for that, one would see that, okay, if you buy something in the capital region, it primarily like since it's last quite fair valuation, it didn't appreciate at all. And so it's uh, it becomes a situation where you definitely want a discount. You're not going to, I'm not going to pay a market price for something that's not going to appreciate. And I'm not going to buy it for cash flow either because that's you know, a little bit of a, maybe a rookie strategy can say to buy for cash flow, right? So you want to have some kind of equity upside. So, so that's, um, you know, uh, that's, uh, that was another strategy. So either like a renovation project and I have also um, a five, uh, five unit upstate, which has like amazing cash flow and, you know, cap rate is over 20, I think. And, and it's actually the genuine cap rate, it seems like, because there's like almost very, almost no repairs, at least so far. And that also had a lot of equity gain because it just was bought at such a discount. And I was able to pull like, I was would pull like tax, uh, tax data as well. And let's say tax market values are not a great market value, of course, let's say, but to an extent, they, they are useful data because, you know, like tax authorities, they, they do try to, it's not the assessment. It's really the assessment times like an equalization rate. So it's meant to right. be a market value. It's, you know, it's not a, it's not total nonsense. So in that case, like that property, I bought it like close to half of the tax market value, which was outstanding because actually it was interesting that most of, even if tax market value is kind of irrelevant, most of the properties were trading on the MLS around like within like 5% of the tax market value. Hmm. So it was, and actually the majority were trading still above it, even in those depressed uh, markets. And so that was like kind of one data strategy to find something that's just discounted, that's not going to appreciate because the market is depressed, but just happens to have like a very strong cash flow and, and, uh, and is also so are, discounted and it was fairly turnkey. <laughs> when you're looking for stuff in this manner, are you entirely agnostic to the market? I mean, I, I'm assuming that your algorithm or your search, it, it, you're not necessarily saying, I, I only want to look in upstate, right, this, these specific cities in upstate New York, or is that what you're doing? Or are you saying, I'm just looking at anything, and if it just so happens to be in these certain cities, and that's great. Right. I mean, you're saying in a sense of, like, do I have like the more typical kind of investor focus where you pick a market and you right. want to work just right. there? And well, I would say to the extent of if I'm not intending to do any renovation work, then I am somewhat a little bit agnostic or more agnostic than other people would be or try to be. So I try to, okay, if I'm picking like a project that I can sell to somebody else, um, like those like renovation projects where you can just buy the, the renovation project discounted compared to the price of the same renovation project that ought to be maybe, let's say. Um, and then, uh, so those, 
you know, I would be pretty agnostic then that they can be, um, you know, really far upstate, like eight hours from New York or something. And mm. I don't really care because I'm not even going to see it in person. So just literally just buy it like a stock and kind of rest right. of it. And that's a profitable thing that one can do, just literally finding deals like that with data and reselling them. It's not a super huge margin. And so I kind of, I honestly don't want too much to bother with it since you still want to like, you still need to do your inspection and et cetera. But, but in theory, one can pick up like, um, you know, small spreads and accumulate them in a way where you do not need to see the property or renovate it just because you are, I mean, you would need to do your inspection and FaceTime view it, of course, and try to get as many data points as possible. But, but to some extent, you're pretty hands off. It sounds like you're using data quite a bit at the micro level, kind of on the on the asset level to try to find deals. Do you do you apply data in the same manner to try to identify markets or to try to gauge the how do you go about that? I do, yes, and that's a good question. And and so first actually to um I just wanted to give like a quick summary if you guys would um Oh, wow. So I just wanted to give like to me, like actually what's data-driven investing? Because we did mention like this kind of on-market listings kind of analysis, but I just wanted to give like some of the other, I would say this is like the number one pure COVID, let's say. Then a second one to me is, let's say in the commercial space would be like off-market modeling of uh, apartment buildings where you want to, one can do it with um, rental listings data online as well as um, as well as in inventory for those apartment buildings. So let's say inventory you now can be from Prospect Now, Yardy Matrix, etc. Or it, it could be also uh, if one wants to web scrape it online, one could do that, you know, at his own uh, legal risk as well. Um, but basically, if you have, if you're able to combine inventory with rental listings data, you sort of have preliminary modeling for thousands and thousands of commercial buildings where you can model their value add in a way that, okay, you can rank them now, these and these buildings uh, in those markets show the potential that you can uh, have like higher NOI increase and higher value add to, to your project. Let's say in the, in the sense of due to from their rental listings data, obtaining information for, okay, are there rents below market? That's the more obvious thing. But then also are there other income components too? If one takes a resource like costarsapartments.com, and I've spoken at this uh, about this at my webinar as well. So they actually have other income components for those buildings. They would have like, whether they're charging pet fees, administrative fees, et cetera. And if a building is, let's say, not optimizing this relative to their neighborhood, you could realize an NY from that, NY uh, potential from that. Or, or let's say their utilities, like uh, rental listings, they may say whether they're billing back utilities and things like that, and apartments.com do it. So, so with that, one can do like a little bit of algebra to put together the pieces and, and model, okay, at the end, this is the percentage improvement in value that I can have if I purchase this building potentially, or like the potential. You may have to put like renovation work, et cetera. That's hard to determine what the amount of it would be. But but again, it's um you can do preliminary. It's like if you think about if you're given a deal and you have its income expense sheet and you try to gauge is it under, you know, sort of does have value add potential. Well, you're not going to have the income expense sheets for a thousand buildings or tens of thousands of buildings, let's say, but you can have a preliminary walk into them through, through this approach, preliminary modeling, like through rental listings data. And so even though it's not going to be perfectly accurate, 
you will be able this way to like study many and then you can direct your maybe like direct mail campaigns according to this and, and etc. So this is another example of kind of um, modeling and like um, data-driven investing thing. Uh, on the market side, that would be, you know, kind of regression analysis for markets and just really not, I would say not what syn many syndicators, for example, do or investors in general where they would, okay, they just pick I mean, in the sense when they're interested in like growing markets, let's say they would pick like, okay, this is like job growth and population growth, et cetera, and sort of back reason, okay, that's a great market or, or something like this. But it's more like, okay, actually looking at all the data, you know, having like, all oh, 3000 counties in the US looking at really is this a strong market and, you know, mm -hmm. like making maybe your own projections and et cetera. So that's a more data driven approach. And the another thing on the market side is having downside risk predictors. So downside risk predictors is something I talk about what because so that's knowing market valuation. Market valuation in real estate is easy. It's not the stock market. You, you don't have S and P five hundred, which is dr driven by top the top five tech stocks at the moment. You know, like Apple, Google, etc. Right where their valuation is okay, not super clear, or especially something like Tesla, let's say, right? And 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 so valuation in the stock market has gotten, you know, worrier and worrier and you know it's less clear. In real estate, we have I feel this incredible opportunity where if you think of a private equity market where you can generate alpha because it's a private equity market. So you can beat the public equities by whichever factor, you know, maybe twice even, you know, or maybe more, right? And so, so you have a private equity market where you can, you can generate alpha, you have a, you can have a market advantage. And alpha again, saying that's like, if you have your returns, you have the market correlated to the market returns, let's say, and then beta is, let's say in finance, they call it like your correlation coefficient. And then alpha is like the shifting factor, right? So that's like your, how much you're beating the market. So, so this thing in private equity, where you can, you are able to have alpha, but suppose you're doing it in, with regards to private companies, you don't know their valuation too well. It's really difficult. So like venture capital syndicates, they have a, you know, it's a, it's a difficult job, you know, figuring out and it's like super like human kind of factors, like picking teams that are, you know, they're better integrated into the community. They have like maybe more, their knowledge is better, et cetera. And, and, and that, uh, but, but in real estate, we have this incredible thing that, okay, we know property valuation. So it's a private equity market where the property valuation is known. So you can find mispricings and inefficiencies this way, even like in the, um, so even, uh, with, um, just purely one way would be by using automated valuation models. And that's actually the fourth item I have on, on the list of like data driven investing. That's automated valuation models. So I'm going to come to that. But again, like, so you know, property valuation, you're able to find discrepancies this way, but also, you know, market valuation to an extent. And that's something I'm going to talk about today because market valuation is well, is the current market overvalued, undervalued? And doing that, it's for every single county, maybe zip code state, etc., based on its fundamentals in a way that, okay, that measure is it actually predictive of downside risk. Has it been predictive of downside risk? And we have this also great situation that we had the, that humongous price correction preceding us past the global financial crisis. And we can use this as a back study. 
So we can use this as a bug study. We can look at what predicted the downturn is the best. Was it foreclosure rates? Was it, um, you know, price, relative price volatility in different markets? Was it risk adjusted? Some markets are worse in risk adjusted terms, maybe, or, 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 you know, different, different factors. And this, like knowing market valuation, I think is extremely useful and it's going to be more and more useful in the coming years as we are progressing in the market cycle. Stefan, I, I, I want to um, ask one question, and I don't want to get on a, a super tangent, but Ryan and I just did a, a, an episode about this, and so it's kind of top of mind. I wonder what your perspective is on the iBuying space. So Zillow, for example. You know, I would say that my impression of what Zillow was doing, and obviously, you know, just to give context, Zillow has recently stopped their iBuying, you know, whatever, excursion. Um, I kind of assume that what Zillow was doing is not completely different from what you're describing in a sense, right? They have a ton of data. They're sort of looking for arbitrage, mispriced assets. They don't want to do any work to these properties. I guess their their approach is maybe a little bit more limited, but you know, the the, the kind of chatter online is that, oh, well, that that approach is just flawed, like full stop. And I wonder how how you would respond to that given what you're saying. That's a great, uh, great question. A question actually. So, so I buying is really automated valuation models. That's that's what it's based on. So it's kind of like this fourth item that I'm sharing today, right? So, so that's what kind of spurs the industry or like you know this kind of sub industry call it. But then the thing is that with with, with I buying now, I don't know their business decisions. I don't know like specifically for zero why that became an issue. Let's say relative to Open Door or some of the other players in the space and what they did, etc. Because because I mean purely like the concept of like having like some kind of automated valuation as a preliminary metric where everybody knows that okay that's not going to be accurate in all cases and etc and you know it's you need uh, if you're taking actual business decisions you do typically need something more than that i think is is known so like what's in their business decision made them want to scale to a point and you know it's kind of like it's a big organization i don't know what were the incentives of all the you know like management there etc and so i'm not aware, but, but as far as, okay, as far as, let's say, they're purely their tech, let's say, like their Zestimate, let's say, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen their Zestimate often being kind of off. That's a difficult thing. And I listened to their uh, CEO before, uh, actually before the iBuying thing happens, pretty, pretty recently before that, and he was sharing, okay, you know, like, it's really difficult to value houses, you know, it's a, it's a challenging thing, it's a challenging thing, and especially single family houses, you know, which have like lots of different parameters, etc. So, so again, that's not, I think, as far as what business application should be done on top of this technology is a, is a, an important question or a different question, but, yeah. but to me, like, the case where you can have preliminary analysis done for you, where you would further dig into it later, but you still have like this kind of preliminary information is, is just very valuable because it allows you to scale. Let's say, what is the alternative? Like the alternative is you don't have it. And then if you don't have it, you, you're not going to preliminarily study a thousand buildings. Now it's kind of a missing, you know, like a missing piece of information now. So, so that's just kind of my perspective, but definitely like the zero tail, you know, has been a kind of a cautionary, <laughs> cautionary tale to, to AVM. And, you know, it's, um, it, it's true. And, and another thing is, 
because like the first part we spoke about, like about let's say underwriting listings, that doesn't most of the time rely on AVM per se, unless you want to find like price inefficiency specifically. But if you most of the time it would be more like okay, you're underwriting like computing like the cap rates or whatever, like what's gonna be your based on your financing, your cash on cash and and etc. On on different deals and, and and so this kind of automated underwriting or, or let's say the commercial example that I gave, which is also really automated underwriting for off market commercial um, multifamily. So that is also facilitated by an, another technology, which is, for example, which is computer vision and NLP are uh, super useful there. Because I feel like the main thing in automated underwriting is, okay, everybody can pull data and like run some calculations on them. But then the real challenge is then where the human factor comes in is, okay, well, you have to, you want to look at the, the images of mm-hmm. those properties right. or you want to read the descriptions, right? So one wants to automate intelligence to have true automated underwriting. And that's uh, where I believe is one of the most useful applications of machine learning to real estate, which yeah. is image condition scoring, like uh, condition scoring via, via uh, computer vision. And so there is a company in New York called uh, Foxy, Foxy AI. I'm not associated with them, but they, they have a product for condition scoring for real estate images. And so um, they That's have a computer vision algorithm and, and, and they do that. And then similar thing can be done purely on the textual side, which, you know, it kind of looks less, less fancy, but in reality it can be super useful because one can screen through thousands of um, real estate listing descriptions and sort of textually classify them on, on, on various things, you know, yeah. be it what their condition is or, or, or even other, you know, other uh, information that one, one wants to extract. So that's a de- another application. And, and the idea with these, uh, with these types of technologies is that through AI, you could look at a building or you can feed photos of a building or videos of a building into the platform and it would say, okay, or it can, it can determine this is a class A building. This is a class C building. Um, this has X type of finishes. This is Y type of finishes. And therefore it should be on the higher end or the lower end of rents. Yes. Uh, correct, correct. Well, because for example, let's say if one wanted to under, let's say we stick to the residential kind of like small, like small multifamily or single family space. And, and let's say we want to, we we want to get do our underwriting for for those buildings, but and let's say you're determining if that building has some discount relative to a value, or or if even like what what its cap rate is gonna be, and 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 so you you need to know condition, right? right. Or let's say you want to put like a renovation estimate or budget and right. and all those things, and and so so you might end up seeing a lot of. On one side, it's challenging to do this because it's going to be done correctly. But then if you actually look at, let's say, Foxy AI's uh, condition scoring for images, they tested like some of my private properties with them. And oh, it's actually kind of aligning with my intuition. You know, it seems pretty good. So so if that becomes the case that it aligns with your intuition, well, then you don't need to do it manually. You don't need to. I mean, you will ultimately do it manually before taking your business decision. And I think one should. But um, but at least you wouldn't have to do it for a thousand of them, you know, or like 10,000 or something like that. So it strikes me that for a lot of what you've described, the, the real use case, at least today for modeling and, and these like data driven approaches is to serve almost as like a filter or a screening tool so that you can say, parse through 5,000 listings and hone in on maybe the 50 that you should focus on 
as opposed to trying to manually go through 5,000 listings and one by one ask the question, is this one look at, look, worth looking into further? I think to an extent it is, yes, to an extent, because, yeah, so that your ultimate business decisions be taken later in a kind of maybe in a human way, right? And plus, there can, can be a lot of inaccuracies in the data. Let's say if you pick, I mean, even if you are, let's say you are fed, you want to underwrite a commercial property and you are given the income expense sheet, you know, we know that a lot of that, very often that information may be inaccurate, you know, like just the, the seller is giving numbers that are not reasonable, or there are certain omissions or et cetera. So, so there is, you know, a lot of, you know, there's just flexibility to the human, human, uh, human brain or, you know, where we can do a lot of different tasks uh, in a flexible way. So, so it's definitely not aiming to automate a hundred percent of the process, but to your point, yeah, it gives a filter and it just can change. It's a mindset. So, so kind of, I try to, with data-driven investing, I try to inspire people for a different mindset and kind of to investing and like a different approach. Because again, uh, like if one takes this mindset, it just becomes a little bit different. Let's say, let's suppose you are a commercial multifamily investor out of state. And, and now, of course, there's aspects, there's real estate is a physical asset. You maybe want to be vertically integrated and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But suppose you, um, you know, you can actually find like incredible value deals where the rents are super, super under market and those other income components, expense components, et cetera. And uh, so you now don't need to you just have more visibility. You, you can look at things that are valuable, that are kind of brought to you in an automated manner that are, you know, underwritten to a point. And which are not constraining you to, you know, okay, kind of having this kind of limiting, oh, now I'm working in Indianapolis, Indiana, or something like that, which there are valid reasons for that. There are valid business reasons, but sometimes one may be somewhat flexible. Okay, maybe wants to build, can maybe able to build a new team for, a, for an amazing deal in a, in a different state. So it's a possibility in that sense. So it's just a different mindset and opens different opportunities. It's also more work. So you kind of end up, oh, now you're in the, end up spending up so much time on doing that. And maybe, maybe you should be doing other business functions or et cetera, but it's, uh, it can be valuable. I mean, what's not, I would say what's not the data driven approach is, for example, when people pull, like in my opinion, like when people pull, like say a market Marcus and Millichap report and the report itself is sort of based on data-driven things that contains data, right? But, but that said, you're not interacting with the data. You're not actually looking into it. And typically, at least my experience is I would not get anything out of it or like very little, and I would not have any depth or understanding of uh, what's going on. So that in itself is not a data-driven approach, reading data-driven things from other people in an overly summarized way, let's say. And that is um, the truth. And you know, or sort of just selecting markets without considering, let's say you're selecting markets by expectation for appreciation on, on their population or job growth, et cetera, but, but then actually doing some kind of regression or statistical analysis for what you're actually seeing out of those parameters and relative to other markets and et cetera. So that's also, I would say, not data-driven, but just, oh, let's just pick like a bunch of factors and maybe just back reason on my market that it's why it's a great one. I wanted to explore... Before this podcast, we, you know, you, you talked a little bit. And, and one thing that I, I think is, is fascinating is you, you've done some analysis at a very broad level of market valuations. I think that some of your analysis suggested that perhaps we are entering a, a bubble or whatever you want to call it. I don't know what the buzzword is for it. 
I'd love to hear about about your thoughts on that. I think that's relevant to a lot of investors, obviously to to residential investors and for, for certainty. So can can you can you expound on that a little bit? I'd love to. Yeah, so at my company, Rio Tikkun, so one of the things that uh, uh, that I do is I publish market data. And the market data focus is not all just like broadly parameters, but the main thing is really valuation. So like where markets valued right now. And so what I, so I started doing it at the beginning of COVID. So my COVID, my, my intention was, uh, or incentive was, okay, I wanted to understand if, what if the market takes a downturn, what would be like the, um, which am I going to be exposed in the markets in which I am versus other other markets, etc. And and so what I was finding then, and I, I was speaking at some events, and I was always the narrative was U.S. real estate is fairly valued. So there were a couple of exceptions at the time. So the several exceptions at the time, and that's the beginning of COVID, and stayed the same through the end of 2020. So the big pronounced exception was Idaho. So Idaho is a state, and this is just like speaking. So I have this study for um, 2,700 U.S. counties, but really, let's say in terms of states, like high-level discussion. So, so the state of Idaho was the only pronounced kind of, you know, in strong overvalued territory, 25% overvalued at the time, and it stayed roughly at the same level through the end of the year. There are several others very well performing, you know, states, the West and South, as we know, like growth, this market cycle in the U.S. real estate has been, you know, pretty much the whole Western half and then a little bit to the South with Texas and Florida. So the other like very strong markets that had gone a little bit overvalued in the range of 10 to 16 percent overvalued at the time were, uh, okay, Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, Texas and Washington states. So, so those were that was the picture. So it was okay. Then the rest of real estate is fairly valued, fairly valued, let's say between zero to 10% slight overvaluation, some overvaluation, or even many states like states in the North, Northeast, like New York, New Jersey, undervalued, in fact, you know, in, in the negative territory. And so when people will say, you know, like, because you guys are, uh, you know, we're investors uh, in New Jersey, um, in New Jersey, like people would say, oh, the market, is overvalued or is too too high or etc. Well, how do you know it? Like unless you actually like take all the fundamentals. How how fundamentals have grown? Where fundamentals mean income, population, housing supply. How they have developed? Where is the current price? And sort of like try to find like some kind of discrepancy. And so, it's it's not uh, it's not overvalued even now. You know, in New Jersey and New York states, and um, and it, it wasn't. It was in fact New Jersey as a state. This market cycle was undervalued significantly, and, and and so this was the picture. And I was you know speaking about this narrative. Okay, U.S. real estate is fairly valued, and and so so what happened now this year? So this year. Now we all, you know, we know there's like inflation, um, you know, and you know that people have been urging, okay, like to buy real estate for, for the purpose of you know hard assets in general for the purpose of inflation, right, or hedging against inflation or benefiting from inflation and and so forth, and and we've heard like some of the stories in um, of rent growth as well. So let's say which is sort of translates to commercial real estate growth or commercial uh, multifamily growth at least. So so rent growth in Phoenix, you know, being I believe above above twenty percent year over year and, and things like that. And and so does that necessarily mean it will be a bubble? No, no. You just, one just has to measure it. So so the approach and what I saw is that uh, so the same states that were where just Idaho was at 25% well Idaho jumped in the second second and third quarter kind of like gradually of this year to well 48% and 
and the state of Arizona jumped, uh, so like 25 to 48, and then Arizona jumped from um, 15 to 32, and Nevada from, I don't know, maybe 13 to 29, and so Utah 28, Colorado 22, Texas 20, depending on which data source. So so Texas and Florida, and just to give a perspective, so, so first of all, what is being done and like, why does it matter? What, what does this valuation actually mean? Because so so I base it on a back study of 2000. So downturns post the global financial crisis, post 2007. So what was the best predictor of those downturns? So I looked at maybe like 10 different things. Like I was looking at foreclosure rates. I was looking at um, like relative volatility of different regions. I was looking at, like I mentioned, um, COVID sharp ratios, in fact, like risk adjusted returns. I was looking at affordability deviations and then other and other factors. So, so this, the most predictive metric that I was able to find, and I worked it to like several different, a bit more advanced models, but it really works in a similar way, is affordability deviations against the moving average window were extremely predictive of downturns post the peak. So at the state level, if one takes price income ratios at the very peak in every state, and then, uh, you know, what affordability or pricing conversions have been over the past 20 years and takes the difference of that, that's going to show you, that's going to have a, that had 87% um, if excluding the District of Columbia, let's say, which is, well, well, just the, the big land mass is COVID and slightly, slightly less, you know, I believe 83 with the District of Columbia or something like that. So, so 87% for the state's correlation versus the actual drops that happened in those states subsequently. And when you say the actual drops, that can be like bleeding out for six years, you know, so that can be for, on average was four years of downturn between 2007 and 2011, but really some states or, and, and they had this at the county level as well, and our counties would bottom in like 2013 or, or even later. So that's very, very high, I think, statistically valid thing as far as the, you know, as far as that. And, and at the county level, then less predictive naturally. So significant than it seemed like it's like just like, much harder to predict. So like about 75% at the county level. But again, and the reason for this is because like sometimes people think, oh, it's if like price income ratios are predicting something. It's not true, actually. It's or affordability. Affordability in itself does not predict downside risk. It is changes in affordability. And also when these changes in affordability are taken against the moving average window only. Because when you do that, you're kind of reflecting other parameters inherently. For example, if we have a city where, which is, let's say, San Francisco, and that city is developing housing shortage over time, let's say its affordability is at six, where home prices are six times incomes in San Francisco, let's say, many years ago. And then now it's decades later, it's at 20. Well, so it's because housing shortage has been developing over the time. So population to housing supply ratios have been changing. That affordability has been shifting up, upwards. So it's just one wants to find a kind of an error term, if you will, that is above those fundamentals of um, income and housing supply and population. So I found this to be the most predictive of, of downside risk. Now, if we take an example, I, I've read, even in the beginning of COVID, I read some articles. There is a data vendor called Atom Data Solutions that have, they have the best foreclosure data. So they had published like some county level study, which was showing, um, you know, let's say some counties in New Jersey, for example, Sussex County, New Jersey, it has like some of the highest foreclosure rates in the country, even though 
it's like a decent, nice area. But um, you happen to have, because overall foreclosure rates are at a low point because we're at a good time in the market cycle. And so, okay, there's New Jersey is a, is a peak state nationwide, nationwide for foreclosures, at least in those market times. And it's always tends to be in top five and it's typically number one even, and et cetera. And so they were like uh, looking at, okay, what's New Jersey and also Florida and and there were maybe a couple of Western markets kind of are more at risk. Well, this is not uh, like very, I would say, statistically valid analysis because if one looks and tries to look at foreclosure rates in advance, predicting downside, it doesn't work. It doesn't predict anything. Like you don't even you don't even need to compute correlation in this thing because it's seen that it's like extremely off. And here, for example, the example is see here, for example, uh, New Jersey, well, it's a high foreclosure state, but it happens to be undervalued this market cycle because the Northeast is undesirable. And New Jersey is, well, a broadless state. Now there's, you know, Hudson County is more fairly valued and perhaps slightly overvalued now. The whole rest of the state is pretty much undervalued and undervalued states Plus, the global financial crisis had extremely different performance from overvalued ones. So where the, the four overvalued states at the time of California, um, Arizona, Nevada, California, Arizona, Nevada, and Florida, so they, they were overvalued like 40, 50%, and they dropped in comparable terms, like 40, 50%. And um, the undervalued states at the time, which were, for example, Texas was undervalued and North Dakota was undervalued. So Texas was 5% undervalued and their, their drop was actually only 4%. So that was, to me, like extremely interesting that, okay, we have, you know, like the biggest, maybe the biggest drop in like recorded price history, let's say nationwide in the US. And, um, and, and nevertheless, well, states, now it's a little bit different for counties, but states, big land masses, you know, or big, big markets, quote, quote unquote markets, which were undervalued, they actually did not drop. So their drop of 4% tied to the, um, the income drop in the US at the time. And so one can argue they didn't even drop in valuation terms. It's just that they just kind of prices fell down with incomes, but valuations really stayed the same. So people who, who invested in Texas at the time, they had no effect whatsoever. For example, I had um, Vinny Chopra at my webinar um, last week. And uh, Vinny Chopra, he said he did his first uh, multifamily syndication, purchasing an asset in uh, Midland, Texas, I believe in 2008. It sounds like the worst time to buy an asset, yeah. right? And and here you had a like forty three percent IRR over six and a half year period, six and a half years period um, at this asset, uh, where, where what is like one reason? I mean, uh, associated reason? Well, prices in Texas they actually didn't drop at the time. You know, hmm. almost at all. I mean, four percent. There was four percent drop roughly. It's because Texas was undervalued, so so he wasn't really exposed. That's fascinating. What conclusions, or I guess we've talked about some of the conclusions, but how are you, are you changing your approach at all in light of this data? Or if you were speaking to another investor seeking advice, what would you give them based on this? Is it just kind of cautionary or? I am changing my approach like big deal because to me, okay, I, I want to get into commercial, like commercial real estate. And, um, and so, okay, I was, I, I just I go, go about it this year. I go, oh, let's refresh my data and let's look at how our evaluation is working right now because it's been pretty consistent. And just to give a perspective of this, like why I define it, at least in this measure, that 
we entered the bubble in the second quarter of this year is because, um, okay, for four years, if we take the states of Florida and Texas, for four years, they were valued at like 8 to 10% of slight overvaluation. So, and they, that stayed super consistent. So to whoever is running, I don't know if private equity funds do some of that. Whoever is running those things, every single quarter, you see it at 8 to 10%. Now in the second quarter of this year, these numbers doubled. So they went to, depending on data source, if it's Federal Reserve Bank of Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, they went to like 19, 20%. FHFA, they went to uh, 17, 18%. So they kind of doubled relative to their prior level over a really short period. And so that to me is like very disturbing. So I wanted to see, okay, I, I, I was still considering at an eight, nine percent overvaluation to maybe invest in Florida because I believe overvalued markets will continue doing great. Valuation is not a good predictor of appreciation, by the way. So even if you take valuations at the down point in the market, so where so after the, the declines post the global financial crisis, market valuations in certain regions, they went to like in undervalued territory. So if one looks at like this vector of valuations at the time where did the undervalued uh, regions perform better than, than, than others in subsequent appreciation in, during the market, market cycle? Well, not really. There was, I believe, like 12% correlation or something. There is a very slight positive correlation. Now, it's not negative, but it's really insignificant. And so valuations are not predictors of appreciation. I believe a good predictor of appreciation is if one simply takes autocorrelation in a market. So autocorrelation is like like a measure of momentum, like how much the current growth this year is correlated to the last year. And that's actually probably the best extremely simple way to, to gauge where appreciation is going to be. And it varies though. In some regions, autocorrelation is, is very low and it's not a good approach. But if we take the, the, the state of Florida, for example, the autocorrelation is extremely high. So let's say my consideration at the time for commercial asset, assets was, okay, Florida is at 8 9% overvaluation, but autocorrelation, they're so high, okay, maybe I can pick up some appreciation in Florida, of course, on an asset that the, the asset itself is undervalued and invest like that. But now that the valuations actually doubled, it became a totally different story. So I was... Um, Telling like some of my, you know, like investors uh, that he know and potential potential partners. Well, it's it's the time to invest in well, um, really Midwest and you know maybe even Northeast. And it's not an extremely exciting thing to say, but it's really uh, in valuation terms, it's places like Indiana and um, Ohio and Kentucky and and even Pennsylvania and New York, which are which are the places to invest now, because I personally am not going to invest in a state where the state is over about 20%, you know? Like this is a, this is a, this is a very high, very high uh, overvaluation. And, and again, like this exists at the city's level. So let's say if we take 800 city or I mean, at county level and sort of like map it like to cities, like approximately. And so, so for 800 cities with more than 50,000 population, so if some of you listen to, um, maybe have listened to Neil Bauer, so Neil Bauer is like a more known like data scientist, multifamily investor. So Neil Bauer, he, he, he spoke about like some of the best markets right now. And, and so what is the best performing city this market cycle? Well, it's Boise, Boise, Idaho out of like 800 cities, right? And, um, and that's actually exactly tying to my data. And by the way, the way you know if a city is well performing is you need to know valuation too, because otherwise, 
where do you, what is the starting point for your appreciation? You need to start at a fairly valued point. So for example, if we take, let's say, like Florida, so Florida, the prices in Florida until, let's say, the beginning of COVID, they were roughly similar to the 2007 peak, but that's just because Florida was super distorted in 2007, was super overvalued by like 50%. And so you would not know like where to, like where, how to properly compare appreciation if you don't start at a fairly valued point. So you need a full history of valuations, even to know market strength in that sense. And so, and so this was, so Boise, Idaho was like the best performing uh, city in America, the cycle, it's also extremely overvalued. So I just refreshed my data for like this third quarter of this year and Boise is at 57% overvalued. It's an extreme, bu- extreme bubble territory. And there were examples of very strong performing cities which were not overvalued at least uh, at an earlier stage in the cycle, at least a year ago. So if we take Denver, Colorado, so Denver, Colorado was extremely top performing city. So in the, I believe in the one, let's say top 100 city was maybe number two after Boise. So Denver, Colorado, in spite of its incredible performance was nevertheless at 0%, was not overvalued at all. So fundamentals there in terms of income and uh, population to housing supply ratios, COVID, uh, you know, they, they apparently supported that growth. And now at this point that, you know, with inflation, you know, things went a little bit overboard with asset inflation, you know, as opposed to differential asset versus wage inflation. So that went into overvalued, uh, slightly more overvalued territory. And I believe maybe Denver is at 12% or something like that. And, and again, like their um, regions, which were less desired this cycle, they're, they're undervalued now. So the states of New York and New Jersey, they're at, I see them at least in current data at minus 3%. So, so it's not to say that real estate is not everywhere in the bubble. It's just, it's to the West. It's the state of, the states of, uh, the states of Idaho and Arizona and et cetera. And then I know some, some people like some investors, I hear the narrative. So one narrative that I hear is, so invest in hard assets because there is inflation. Sure. But that, you know, sounds like that's like a little bit of a simplified notion because if you, yes, but unless that inflation leads them to, leads to some kind of discrepancies where, you know, other like fundamentals don't move accordingly. So for example, you know, if inflation leads to as in the state of Arizona this year, in the first half of the year, prices appreciated 17% and incomes appreciate by 1%. This is a distortion that is actually brought by inflation. And now maybe hopefully that kind of settles down. So maybe like some of the current quote unquote bubble, you know, is going to be maybe a shorter one. And, uh, you know, like some of the uh, incomes afterwards catch up and we see like extremely high wage inflation or something, you know, hopefully. So that's also possible. Also, another thing is if we have, um, if we have, a market that is overvalued, it doesn't mean it's going to correct because it's just, let's say, past the global financial crisis, we have a broadly a correction scenario. So let's say I looked at like, oh, like about 3000 counties at the time, let's say the data. And so let's say by some definition of what is a correction, let's say it's a certain percentage drop within a certain period, et cetera. And, and so 80% of counties in the US experienced what we can call a correction. And so it was broadly speaking a correction scenario at the time. Now it doesn't mean that if let's say now like some of those Western states and to the South, right, they're overvalued. It doesn't mean they're going to correct because 
they can experience, for example, more stagnant growth in the future, stagnant price growth. And maybe then kind of gradually over a long period, prices catch up in theory. Or they don't, what is actually a little bit possible in the short term now, is they don't experience stagnant price growth, but they they continue growing strong, but incomes experience sort of a super growth. And some of that difference catches up. And they become more, uh, more fairly valued. Now, in reality, most of the time, historically, things end up with, uh, with price corrections. So, so, so that's uh, definitely cautionary and it's extremely informing my decision because to me, at this point of market cycle, we have the, the great opportunity at the property level, as I mentioned before, to find undervalued assets or assets that have a value add potential. Now, of course, that is protecting an investor to an extent. But do you want to have like all your effort for finding that deal wiped out by a market downturn? No, right? In that sense. And so to me, like what was most informing from this back study that I did for the global financial crisis was it's not so much all to point to which markets are overvalued as to, to realize that actually undervalued states and undervalued counties within those undervalued states did not experience nearly any drop. So like a drop of 4% is, is, you know, is quite fine. So over, in fact, in fact, it happens over a period of several years. And there was the state of North Dakota at the time was extremely undervalued. And by the way, the state, and, it and it performed very well afterwards, the subsequent market cycle. And in fact, it's even undervalued now. And it's a well-performing state. And because uh, it's still a relatively kind of like a Western market. And, um, and so... And so the the state of uh, North uh, Dakota experienced actually no drop in like Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis data. So at the state level, there was like 0% drop, like prices stayed exactly the same and, and then later uh, went up and et cetera. So, so to me, like this is the, the value here because I mean, if we, we look at... Um, like I've had a few like syndicators, I don't want to mention names uh, at my webinar who were around at the time and... And most of them, the narrative is, you know, they, they was what they made, you know, so they, they built up their network before that, then, then it all disappeared because it's, you're levered, you know, you have leverage and, uh, you know, as the market took, uh, if they were in Florida or in Arizona, you know, the market took, takes a huge downturn of, you know, 50%, 40%, you know, and you're levered. So that's pretty significant. So I believe that it's going to be the same now for people who are in, in unfortunately, in Idaho and Arizona. Yeah. So, yeah, th this is this is also great information and fascinating. Let me just pivot because I think we're we're nearly out of time. I want to pivot to what what it is that that you do now. I know that you're you have started your own firm essentially. I'd love to hear a little bit about that and also how people can reach out to you if they're interested in learning more or using your services to kind of guide investment decisions or whatever they they might. Can you can you speak to that? Yes, so I'm looking to, um, so I'm switching from like residential to commercial investment, like I mentioned, and I'm looking a lot into blockchain. So I want to do like more like tokenization and kind of tied to like decentralized finance in a way. So sort of building up the, the new finance space in, in a way, in real estate, but, but really like using blockchain for, for some of that, um, building that investment ecosystem. So that's mm -hmm. one thing I, I'm currently working on. I uh, started a course uh, in data-driven real estate investing. So my website is, is realtyquant.com. So the realtyquant.com academy. So I have a course 
with Python, teaching like some of the some of the same principles. So it goes over like all the the different modules, automated evaluation, and and um, and everything else we discussed today. Just to be clear, it's realtyquant, Q-U-A-N-T dot com. Yes, thank you, John. And yes, and I do publish market data there as well. And I do feel that people should know where market valuations are now. I feel it's extremely important, especially for people to the in Western markets, as I discussed. So, and it, it can take, you know, it's like I said, at least what I see is we kind of just entered the bubble. So it wasn't the case before, you know, so, so, but in this sense, it can take, you know, a few years for that to um, maybe realize, or hopefully it doesn't realize with a correction. So I'm sure that people have time in that sense to inform their decisions, but, but at least it may prompt to, okay, it's not as much as selling assets in a, in a market that's currently overvalued because I'm sure it's going to continue doing really well until the peak. It's more actually follow those valuations. And, and in fact, in real estate, even the price downturns, they don't happen that super quick. Even during the global financial crisis, it takes some time. Now, about, I believe about 25% of the downturn happened in the first year. So that's significant, but it's not super huge. And, and one can kind of track it and maybe even sell his asset within the first six months to an extent. In, in real estate, I feel it's a little bit more doable than the, than the stock market. And, and so if one has like this constant tracking of where markets are going and the other thing can change super quickly versus we saw now like over like just like q2 and q3 things went you know, like to double the prior levels and, and more than that and and just really a, a change in market regime so so i kind of urge people to check that out so that's realtyquant.com analytics that's uh, market data thanks Stefan. thank you so much for being here there's, there's i think there's a tremendous amount to unpack and all that that you've said and i would love to continue the discussion in a different context or in, in the same context of a future episode i just thank you so much for your perspective it's i think it's fascinating i just bookmarked three different links on his website for uh, <laughs> things <laughs> for to look into digestion. to all of you guys out there you can reach out to Stefan through realtyquant.com as he just said if you're interested in contacting us myself or ryan we always love your thoughts or feedback or comments. My email address is john, J-O-H-N, at libertyhudson.com. And I'm Ryan, R-Y-A-N, at libertyhudson.com. If you have any comments, thoughts, perspectives, please reach out. We love hearing from everybody who listens to us. If you're able to like or subscribe via the podcasting service that you are listening to this on or on YouTube, we would really appreciate that. It really helps us out a lot. And until next time, thank you guys so much for watching. We'll be back next week with a new podcast episode. And thank you again, Stefan, for being our guest today. Thank you. Don't forget to visit us at BrickXBrickRealEstate.com for free content to help you along your real estate journey and to follow along on our projects. Subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app and engage with us online via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and BrickXBrickRealEstate.com. See you next time on the Brick by Brick Podcast.